you have your Bibles, why don't we turn together in Luke's Gospel to the 20th chapter. And if you do need a Bible while we're turning in ours, you feel free to lift your hand up. And there's two guys in the aisle there that would be happy to give you a Bible to follow along God's Word as we study this morning. We left off last time in Luke 20 there in the 26th verse. So this morning we'll pick back up as we continue moving in verse 27. And we're going to go down as far as verse 44. Luke 20, verse 27, tells us, Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, referring to Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her in a like manner. And seven also and they left no children and died. And last of all the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered them and said, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him any more. And he said to them, How can they say that Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then? His son And Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit <clears throat> as we open up the Word of God. Lord, we realize it's not like any other book that exists on this planet. It's not just black and white pages or ink, Lord, on paper, but it is your will breathed out by the inspiration of your Spirit that we might know what your will is and who you are and who we are in relation to you. Lord, you know we need your help as we open the Word of God, so we pray that, Jesus, you would open our minds to comprehend the Scriptures, that you'd open our ears to have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church. Lord, we need your assistance. Prepare us, and Lord, be the one who presents the Word of God in a powerful and personal way to each one of us this day. Speak to us now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, this morning I want to begin by asking you a question to consider, and that is this. By whose word do you live by? By whose word do you personally live by? See, I'm of the opinion that everybody bases their life to a great extent upon the words of someone. 
In fact, I can almost guarantee today you have developed your ideas about things in life and you have in some sense even plotted your way of life by what information you have heard from someone. Maybe it's a combination of people, but you have plotted your way of life and developed your ideas simply from information that you have heard during your life here on this earth. So the question then becomes very important, by whose word are you relying upon? By whose word are you living by and going by? Let me suggest, I think the safest word to live by is by the word of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think that you're pretty safe and I would stake my claim to say that Jesus is the one who is correct and Jesus is the one worth listening to. And I think this section of scripture really demonstrates that pretty clearly. The background, remember, as we've been talking about in prior sessions together, Jesus is in this last week of his life. We're just a few days within the last few days of the time of the crucifixion. The religious leaders are intensely scrutinizing Jesus, even as they would bring the lambs into the temple area and the priests would inspect the lambs before they would go upon the altar and be offered. Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. So in the same way, Jesus now, he's undergoing inspection as the Lamb the Lamb of God, the ultimate Passover Lamb, and the different religious leaders as we've been seeing have been trying to catch Jesus in his words somehow. And we find the same thing happening once again here in verse 27. Now only it switches to a different group. Verse 27 says, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came and asked him. So uh, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they, they sort of take their break. The Herodians, we know, were assaulting Jesus as well with questions. And now the Sadducees step up to the plate, and it's almost as if there's this competition. Who's going to take Jesus down with the most tricky question and catch him in his words? Now, the Sadducees were a religious sect in Israel, much like the Pharisees who we've talked about before. If the Pharisees were considered the religious sect that were legalists, the Sadducees were considered the religious sect that were liberals. Because the Sadducees were extremely liberal in their viewpoint. They watered down spiritual ideas and perspectives. They were a very wealthy and aristocratic group. Uh, they had a lot of political alliances. They, in fact, they became very political in nature, though they were a religious sect. And they compromised much of the priesthood, which is kind of sad and unfortunate when you think those things through. The Sadducees really ended up becoming many of the members of the Sanhedrin. And again, the Sanhedrin was that 70-member religious ruling council that existed in that day in Israel. And many of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin were made up of the Sadducees. They embraced the first five books of Moses, what we often call the Pentateuch. And it seems that their viewpoint towards the scriptures, they kind of looked at the scripture as more of a set of moral principles rather than a set of clearly spiritual standards that were to be lived by and practiced as the authority over our lives and obey. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. As Luke tells us here by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, they denied the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection or resurrection from the dead. 
as well as the fact that they did not believe, obviously, in the afterlife. In fact, you might want to jot in your notes there, uh, Acts chapter 23, verse 8. Uh, and if you're a note taker this morning, more than probably on other occasions, you might want to have a pen handy because kind of the technicality of some of these passages, I want to give you some other passages to be able to reference and to look at. But Acts 23.8 is another one of the sections of Scripture that tell us about the, the Sadducees, that they denied resurrection, they denied the understanding or the reality of spirits or angels, and they did not believe as well in the afterlife. Acts 23.8 tells us that again. So here we have these Sadducees. Luke says who deny verse 27 that there is a resurrection and they now come and take their turn to challenge Jesus with a question and what they're going to try and do is try and make Jesus look foolish if you notice from our reading they're going to create this ridiculous scenario this hypothetical situation and present it to Jesus to try and entrap him verse 28 says that they came to Jesus and said teacher Moses who they believed in the first five books he wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and yet he dies before they have children his brother should then take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother now what they're referring to here was the law of the Leverite marriage Again, you might want to jot in your notes Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 10. Because there we have description of the law of the Leverite marriage, which basically said that an unmarried man, if need be, should be the one to marry his dead brother's widow. If his brother was married and he died and he did not have children prior to his death, particularly a son where the inheritance would be given to and the name would perpetuate, that if an elder brother had died without having children, the younger brother or an unmarried brother or the nearest of kin, if not, should then marry that widow in the family to basically, as it says here, raise up his brother's name and preserve the family inheritance. It was primarily intended to keep the parcels of land that God had allotted to the different tribes of Israel within the family inheritance and it also was a form of just loving respect and a way to show care for that widow who was a part of the family it was just an honorable thing now you can guarantee that certainly brought about some involvement of who family members married uh, because if you were a brother and you saw your brother courting some gal and you're thinking hmm, if by some chance you get hit by a wagon I don't know if I want that, you know, and, and, and it would certainly create a little family involvement. Now, there was an escape clause, and if you go read Deuteronomy 25, which time doesn't allow, uh, they could get out of it. If, if he didn't want to marry the sister who was a widow for whatever reason, you know, basically there was a, a practice where she would take off his shoe and, and she would spit in his face, and basically he was the brother who didn't observe the Leverite marriage. So depending upon what was worse, you, you, know, you, you, you picked your battles there. But this was a practice that was common in ancient Israel. It was in the law, and this is what they're referring to. Teacher, Moses told us if a man's brother dies without kids, then the brother should take the wife, raise up offspring for his brother. Now at this point, they create this ridiculous hypothetical situation with this law of the Leverite marriage. They say, verse 29, here comes their hypothetical story now. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and he died without children. And then the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, 
In like manner, seven also, and they all left no children and died. Now, if I were brother four or five, watching the pattern, at a certain point you would start to think something's not right in paradise. You know, I, I would perhaps begin to you know, think, wait a minute, you know, we've been through three brothers so far. What's going in the tea? You know, what's her cooking practices? Something pretty peculiar is taking place. It, again, the idea this is a ridiculous hypothetical situation. Seven different brothers marry this same woman. Uh, they all keep dying. She's outliving them all. None of them have children. So now seven brothers die. They were all married to her. None of them had children. Verse 32, it says, And last of all, the woman died also. Praise the Lord. Everybody was probably saying if there was an eighth or a ninth, you know, a possible other relative. Justice was served. She drank her own tea or something. Finally, she dies. The preposterous question now, verse 33, therefore, this is what they're getting to, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, whose wife does she become then? For all seven had her as a wife. And quite honestly, who wants her as a wife? <laughs> in the resurrection, nobody would have wanted her. But they're trying to put out this crazy idea. Okay, she was married to all seven guys. So in this resurrection of the dead and in the afterlife, How's that problem going to get solved? Because all seven were her husbands. So who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? You know, people come up with the same kind of crazy statements nowadays. You know, on, on earth, you have to get a, a, a liver transplant. So in the resurrection, who gets the liver? Or, you know, does you or the original owner? And people throw out these ridiculous hypothetical scenarios trying to just disprove somehow that the Bible doesn't make sense and their purpose was to try and create confusion and they were simply trying to drive home through intellectual thought process how the resurrection is an impossible concept because it just has too many problems. And again, the extreme hypothetical situation they propose here was not to get a factual answer. They could care less. That was not what they were looking for. They were just trying to make Jesus look foolish. And they were trying to make it look absurd that anybody would hold such a spiritual idea that they would believe in the resurrection or that they would believe in an afterlife. And they thought that they, through their savvy, intellectual mindset and their philosophical concepts, could somehow disprove spiritual doctrines that those who were more conservative held Jesus which of course was one of them and how this idea of spirits and angels and resurrection from the dead and an afterlife life how it's just got too many problems that just doesn't work and it's just not logical and it's not reasonable and they're trying to show how it's absurd so they say how are you going to solve that one teacher which of the seven are going to be married to her in the resurrection? All seven had her as a wife. Whose wife does she become? Well, verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, the age to come, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus answers their question by showing them, first of all, that their reasoning processes 
are off target and therefore they're coming to wrong conclusions and they're incorrect. In fact, Matthew 22, in the account there in Matthew's gospel of the same event, you get an extra detail. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us there that Jesus says to them, your error and your mistaken perspective is because, he says, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. There Jesus, right out of the gate, says the problem with your reasoning process is number one, he says you are in error because you do not know the Bible. You don't know the scriptures. And because you are scripturally illiterate, Jesus says, which was quite a reproof to religious leaders, you're a religious leader, but you don't even know your Bible. And that's why you have a wrong theological concept, Jesus was saying. He says, you do not know the scriptures. He also said the other problem, they lacked a scriptural reference and therefore they couldn't come to a proper viewpoint. The other problem, Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. You have a religious exterior, but you don't really have a, a reality of an experience of the power of God in your life. And therefore, because you don't believe in the power of God, you don't realize what God's able to do. Are you limiting God, Jesus says? And what an interesting thing. Jesus says, you have come to a mistaken perspective and you are an error in your reasoning for two reasons. You don't know the scriptures and you do not understand the power of God. And today, you know what? Many people are mistaken in their perspectives and viewpoints for the exact same reasons. Because they are biblically illiterate and because they do not have a true relationship and experience with the God of all power and therefore people come to wrong ideas about things. They draw wrong conclusions and they have wrong perspectives simply because they don't know the scriptures themselves and they don't know the power of God and those two things handicap and hinder anybody from coming to a proper perspective. Do you want to have a more proper perspective on life? Then get to know the scriptures more thoroughly and allow yourself to have a more sincere and real experience with the power of the living God in your life. And you'll realize, like we'll see on Wednesday night in Genesis 18, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Whether we can reason it out in our little finite minds or not. We may not understand something, but it doesn't limit God's power from being able to do what God ultimately will do. Well, Jesus is going to seek to show now how the present physical temporal realm is not the same as the spiritual and the eternal realm. He says here in verse 34, as he's answering their question, this hypothetical scenario, he says, listen, first of all, verse 34, the sons of this age, this present age, he says, they marry and are given in marriage. So part of this present life experience involves participating in the marriage relationship that God has given to us as a gift of part of our experience on this earth. Genesis chapter 2 tells us the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And it says the Lord God made a woman. He brought her to the man and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife and shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And the scriptures there tell us as well that God commanded, remember, Adam and Eve, it says, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So part of this current life, this present age, the physical realm, first of all, due to the fact of the frailty of our humanity, 
in our insufficiencies and incompleteness as individuals. And secondly, because of the death process that exists on this planet Earth, as the result of that, marriage is essential. God knew that. So God gave marriage to us in this physical, temporal experience in this present age. God gave us the marriage relationship. It is essential because we have a need for companionship. We're incomplete many times as individuals and God looked at Adam, created, and God said, but it's not good for you to be alone. I need to make a helper comparable to you, someone who can perfectly come alongside of you with corresponding gifts and abilities whereby you together would be more efficient as a partnership than you would in isolation if you lived alone and God created the marriage relationship for that partnership and that assistance where two become better than one in the relationship of marriage. As well, God gave the marriage relationship. We know also it's necessary for the perpetuation of the human race or procreation. People die. So the earth needs to continuously be repopulated. So God says the two shall become one flesh, be fruitful and multiply. And God's design for procreation is the boundaries of marriage. So Jesus says the sons of this age, that's right. They marry and are given in marriage. Verse 35, but, big important word, but those counted worthy to attain that age, the age of eternal life, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus shows now how the quality and conditions of the spiritual realm, the eternal realm, the age to come, is different than the state and existence of things in this present age upon this earth. Take notice in verse 35 and 36, if you would with me, how Jesus, without any apology, in two short verses, as he's interacting with these Sadducees, how he repeatedly mentions and emphasizes things like what? Resurrection, angels, and the afterlife. Here are these guys, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels and they don't believe in the afterlife. And, and, and Jesus, without any apology, just directly comes at them. In those two short verses, he repeatedly throws the word resurrection, angels, afterlife, raising from the dead. Despite what liberal people may deny or choose not to believe in, it doesn't rock Jesus' boat. Jesus knows firsthand these are literal realities. These things are true and they exist. And look, nothing new under the sun. There are always going to be people with liberal ideas in the world. Sadly, there are always going to be the presence of people in the church who become very liberal in their mindsets and want to water down ideas that are clear doctrinal truths. But the truth of the matter is this. Contrary to any liberal mindset, the Bible teaches things and they are literal realities. There is such a thing as resurrection. The Bible teaches that God resurrects the dead. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead and the Bible teaches that Jesus will raise all people. The Bible teaches that God created angels and spirits and there are in the existence of this present life a realm of spiritual beings in heaven and coexisting in ways and operating among us. There are holy angels and there are unclean demonic spirits. The Bible teaches that. 
The Bible teaches that the soul and the spirit of a person does live on forever. That there is an afterlife and that we do continue to live. In fact, the greatest testimony to that is even again the words of Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 21 through 26. Listen to this account there. It says that Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, listen, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? And it's a literal reality. But Jesus says, the question is, is, do you want to believe the literal truth that I told you? Do you believe these realities? The Sadducees chose not to, but yet it did not diminish the fact that such things were true just because they denied the existence of such things because they couldn't reconcile them mentally. Well, here in Luke 20, Jesus is showing the contrast of the present earthly age and the age to come, eternal life. He says, in this age, life is such and such with marriage. But, he says, verse 35, those who attain that age, and Luke 18 tells us that the age that Jesus is speaking of is the age of eternal life, and he refers as well to it in these verses as the resurrection from the dead. That is living among the eternal state after physical death has happened. The Bible teaches us that there comes a time, a moment, when at death a person becomes absent from the body and then present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. The Bible speaks of such a time when that happens at the death process. In fact, notice as well in these verses the things Jesus says about once we have entered the spiritual realm or the realm that is of the eternal, the afterlife. First of all, Jesus says in verse 35, interesting to take note, he says, people neither marry nor are given in marriage in that realm. In other words, the need for marriage simply no longer exists in the afterlife. It's a different state of existence. In many ways, it's just not necessary. In the afterlife, there's no need to repopulate. There's no need for procreation. There's a fixed number of angels and there will be a fixed number of people in the afterlife. There's no need in the afterlife or in the eternal life to satisfy the desire of human companionship. There's no lack. There's no deficiency. We have spiritual glorified bodies. We don't have sin natures and weaknesses and loneliness. We'll be in complete eternal satisfaction, total fulfillment. And because of that, in many ways, there's no need, the Bible says, for the marriage relationship. It simply is not necessary in that realm. It doesn't exist anymore. Now, some people say, hallelujah. Other people are really sad about that. I mean, you can fall where you want on that. Some people, oh, I hope I get married before Jesus comes. He better not come back before I get married. Listen, you have a really low view of heaven. Ask those of us who are married if you think somehow that, you know, marriage is going to be better than being with Jesus in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the marriage you're looking for. 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. But it just doesn't exist. The Bible teaches. There's no need. It's just not necessary. The bottom line is. As well, Jesus tells us about the age to come eternal life. He says as well here in verse 36, nor can they die anymore. Notice, nor can they die anymore. It speaks of the immortality of the human soul. The immortality of the spirit. It's not possible in the eternal state to die as it is to die in this present age, in this temporal state on earth. In other words, despite physical death, which is a doorway we will all go through if we're not raptured prior to that as a Christian, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once. And despite the physical death process that we go through on this earth, the Bible says we never really, however, cease to exist. We do go through the process of death, but that does not mean that we cease to exist. All it means is the eternal spiritual part of us, which lasts forever, sheds this earthly body and we continue to live on. That's the whole point Jesus is getting to. Important. You and I, every breathing human soul, will live forever and ever and ever. There is no cessation of existence. We will either live forever and ever and ever to God in the presence of eternal life with the Lord or we will live forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire where there is continual and constant torment forever and ever. The simple question is, where will you spend eternity? Because you cannot die. Jesus says, and I'll take his word rather than anybody else's word, they cannot die anymore. Death doesn't exist in the eternal state. Our soul, our spirit will live forever. Verse 36, he says there as well, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now be careful there. That does not say we will become angels. It says we will be like unto or equal to the angelic spirits. A lot of times, you know, somebody dies and people try and say something sympathetic. Oh, I guess God just needed another angel. The Bible does not teach we become angels. Angels are angels. They're created spirits. Human beings are human. The Bible tells us, Jesus says here, that we will be like unto the angels. The idea is that we will have a spiritual quality. There will be a new nature that we possess in the glorified body that we receive. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us in verse 42 to 44, so is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. Listen to this. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. The Bible teaches that there comes a time where we do shed these earthly bodies which are made to exist and function on this earth. See, on this earth, God's given us a physical body that's earthly, it's terrestrial. It, it's made to function and operate on this earth. That's why we're made of the dust of the earth. And this body, this space suit or Pepsi can or milk jug, call it what you would, it's not the real me. But it's something God's given to me to function on this planet. 
to breathe oxygen and to put out carbon dioxide and to be able to touch things and see things and hear things and experience things and it's made to function in this temporal physical realm. But there's another dimension. There's a spiritual and eternal realm which is completely and vastly different and we shall one day shed these earthly bodies in death and inherit a glorified spiritual body as sons of God we shall exist in a new realm Jesus as a new state of being with the Bible says a spiritual body there's a natural body and then there's also a spiritual body listen to what it tells us in 1 John 3 2 to the believer this says beloved now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he Jesus is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is Again, Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed into his glorious body. This new eternal body in the afterlife, sadly, this is the spiritual reality of the resurrection and the afterlife that the Sadducees were clearly disregarding and denying. And can I just say this? What a hopeless perspective. If all we have is hope in this life, I'm really bummed out. Get me some meds. I mean, I'm bummed. If this is it, if this is the best that there is, by golly, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. This really stinks if this is all there is. But the Bible says, no, it isn't. This life's a vapor. This life isn't really reality. The eternal dimension is reality. And I think the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you begin to realize, this isn't reality, man. This is just a temporary vapor. And I'm made, I have a citizenship in heaven and, and everything in me beckons to be ready for eternity. It longs for eternity. It craves for and desires to experience what the eternal life within me will one day allow me to experience in that new dimension. And Jesus says, look, we need to remember that the eternal dimension, it's not the same as here. There are two different states of existence. In fact, it's a much more wonderful and holy and higher ability to continuously live on and to live as unto the Lord. Jesus says, verse 37, again, trying to further validate his point, he says, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Look at Jesus' approach. He uses scripture to validate his spiritual concepts, his spiritual doctrine. He uses the word of God and shows how those who experienced physical death have indeed raised back to life. Notice he pulls from a passage again from the Pentateuch, the first five books, and even as they said Moses, he said, okay, I'll meet you right on your own grounds. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3. And he says here to them, where Moses had that experience of God revealing himself to him, and he says to the Sadducees, even Moses, look, showed, he showed himself in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised to life when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
<clears throat> now, here's Jesus' reasoning. All three of these patriarchs in Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had all died hundreds of years historically to the time now of Moses. They had died prior to the time when Moses was having this experience in the burning bush passage and when God and Moses were dialoguing, notice the Lord does not say to Moses, when you read Exodus 3, he does not say to Moses in the past tense, Moses, I was the God of Abraham. I used to be the God of Isaac. Moses, at one point in time, I was the God of, A uh, of Jacob. No, read Exodus chapter 3 carefully. In Exodus 3, 6, God declares, I am, present tense. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he was saying to Moses, Moses, right now, in this present moment, though it has been years historically since these men died physically Moses present tense right now I am currently at this moment still the God of Abraham still the God of Isaac and I am still the God of Jacob those men though they had died physically they were still very much alive presently I'm still their God at this very hour presently because they're alive that's why he says verse 38 for he is not the God of the dead but of the living, for all live to him. What an awesome declaration of spiritual truth. What a reliable thing, a rock-solid assurance to know that our God is not the God of dead people. He's the God of the living, of people who may have died physically as believers, but they are presently alive, and he is still the God of those people. Over 30 times in the Bible, God is referred to as the living God. 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul refers to God as the King, eternal, immortal, and invisible. See, the living God is eternal. And the living God, therefore, is the source of immortal life, of eternal life. And the Bible teaches that we were created, what? In the image and likeness of our God. Which means that the spirit, the breath of life that was breathed into us when we became a living being from the creation of man, God breathed into us his life and gave to man a spirit, a soul, which is eternal, which will continue to live on after the human physical body fails on this earth. And we will continue to live on either separated from God in hell, an everlasting life if we reject Jesus Christ, or we will continue to live on with God and to God in eternal life if we embrace Jesus Christ. What we choose to do during this life is what determines our existence in the afterlife. So wisdom says the right thing to do now while there's still breath in my lungs and time and I don't know the appointed hour of my death, the right thing to do now is to make him my God and to make him my Lord. To come to the place where I realize that my sins have separated me from my God, but yet my God so loved this world, he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life, eternal everlasting life in God's presence and not everlasting destruction, everlasting torment and damnation in hell that God's given that to us and made it available through a relationship with his son Jesus 
to live forever and ever, that we would surrender ourselves to the Lord, that we would accept Jesus Christ as the Savior for our sins, that we would let Him save us and forgive us and receive the gift of eternal life and through conversion become a child of God and then use our life now to serve God, to live unto Him. Jesus says He is the God of the living for all live unto Him, that we would live unto Him now in preparation to be able to live unto Him eternally because we're now a child of God. See, receiving Jesus is what secures our eternal reservation with the God of the living to live forever. Again, Romans chapter 8, listen to what Paul says. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together He then says in conclusion, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How wonderful to know as a child of God that we serve a God of the living and there is life beyond this present realm and this present time. To know as one of God's children that one day we will be set free from our flesh and the struggles and frustrations of the flesh and our sin nature, that we won't have to wrestle with that anymore, that we'll be liberated from the struggle with our own sin nature and our own selfishness, to know that one day we will be able to get out of a world filled with suffering as the result of sin, That one day we'll be liberated from that and get to live with God forever in the eternal realm with Him. Listen to what the Bible says regarding those days. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. It says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You know, maybe you've had a tough week, a tough season recently. What a blessed assurance to know that if it's well with your soul, that there is coming a time that we will dwell with God, He will be with us personally and presently forever, and He's going to wipe away every tear, and there's going to be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All the former things pass away as we enter into that eternal existence. And to know that because He's the God of the living, that our loved ones who have died in faith and gone on to be with the Lord, listen, they're not dead. They're living. In fact, quite honestly, they are more alive now than they've ever been. Your mothers and fathers and grandparents and maybe children or aunts or uncles or sisters or brothers or fellow Christians, if they've died in faith, listen, they're not dead. 
they're very much alive. They're living unto God in that eternal dimension, enjoying what we one day will and waiting for our reunion. And that is a guarantee that we will reunite with them and live forever and ever and ever. It wasn't goodbye. It was in essence just see you later. See you soon. Because the Bible gives us these assurances. Now, as they hear these things, the scribes, verse 39, it says, who were part of the Pharisees, they answer and say, Teacher, you've spoken well. Why? Because they believed the scribes and Pharisees in resurrection. So they like this. This went well with them. You've spoken well. But after that, it says, they dared not question Jesus anymore. Well, at this point, they realize their questioning has failed. And Jesus now turns the table and he sends a question their way. Verse 41, he says, How can they say, he turns the tables now, that Christ is the son of David? Now remember, as Jesus entered Jerusalem just a few days ago, as he was coming in on the triumphal entry, people were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to what? The son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. So Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. Tell me, how is the people say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Well, they quickly want to pipe up and respond. Well, come on, because that's what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that the Messiah, the Christ, would be David's son. And that is what the Bible taught, that the Messiah and Christ, the Savior, would be of David's lineage and one of his sons. So Jesus is going to say here, wait a minute then, then how do you explain the following? To which he goes on and says, verse 42, David himself said in the Psalms, the Lord, Jehovah God, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So Psalm 110, Jesus says, wait a minute, David's speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, said these words. Jehovah God, Lord, spoke to, David says, to my Lord, Adonai, the Messiah or Christ, sit there at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. Jesus' question, verse 44, is he says, therefore, David calls him Lord, so how then is he also, the idea is David's son. So Jesus says, if David calls the Messiah his Lord, how can David call the Messiah the Lord? If he's David's Lord, how then he also can he be at the same time David's son? Here's Jesus' simple approach. The statement in Psalm 110 really contradicted cultural practices of that day. See, in the mind of the Jews, in a patriarchal culture, the title or term Lord, if a man used it, it was only reserved for your father, or a grandfather, or someone who was of much higher level than you in the family of higher status. Never, ever would a father call one of his sons Lord. It would just never happen. A father would never use the term Lord for one of his sons. So Jesus' reasoning is, if the Messiah in Christ is David's son, if he's his son, why would David ever call one of his sons Lord? People would never do that. How could he, Jesus is saying, how could he be both David's son and also be David's Lord? There's only one explanation. Jesus had to simultaneously be fully God and fully man. 
fully divine and fully human. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ was David's son according to his humanity. And Jesus Christ was David's Lord according to his divinity. And Jesus here is really by the Spirit just again showing how great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifested in the flesh. And that he, Jesus, was both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was the living God dwelling right among them in their midst. It tells us in Colossians chapter 2, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 1 says that he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, the way to know God is to know Jesus. And the way to get to God is to come to Jesus. The way to know God is to know Jesus. And the way to come to God is to come to Jesus. Write John 14, 1 through 9. And that principle is demonstrated clearly in that passage. Hey, this morning I would leave you with this thought. How are you living and making decisions right now? How are you living and making decisions right now? Remember, what we can see and touch, it's all temporal, man. It's all temporal. It's not going to last. Everything we can't see, everything we can't touch, that's what's eternal. That's what's weighty. That's what's lasting. That's what we should be building our lives on and investing ourselves into. Shall we stand? And let's pray and we'll have our worship team come and conclude our meeting. Father, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us by the Spirit of God. And Lord, we ask that you would help the things that we have heard into our ears to powerfully affect the condition of our hearts as we continue to walk in fellowship with you. And for any who have not yet embraced you, Lord, we pray by your Spirit you would prompt them to do such quickly. You know, I want to give you an opportunity before we sing this final song. If you're here and maybe that's you and you've never prayed a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've never acknowledged you were a sinner before God, that you deserve hell, but yet you believe that the love of God shown in the demonstration of the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead is what you need to save you. Right now today, if you're ready to repent of your sin, you want to be forgiven, you want to know that you're going to live forever in eternity with God, right where you're at, just pray a prayer like this and be sincere. Your faith, God will see. You can say, Dear God, I know that I have sinned against you. I'm sorry for all my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I believe Jesus is alive. Jesus, save me. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I receive the gift of eternal life. Help me now to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.